0: 11th century, a Catholic theologian called St. Anselm came up with what was later taken to be a proof for the existence of God. His ontological argument offered a radical new approach to the problem of proving God's existence, because if the argument is successful, then God's existence is established as a logical necessity. But what does the ontological argument look like, and is God really the sort of being whose existence can be proven or disproven? I'm Rob, he's Ed, and you're listening to The Thirst. That's right, we're back. And this time we've brought a friend with us. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Mr. William Herman, the glorious victor of our Series 1 Name Your Topic competition. They'll be talking about this day for centuries. Come and take a pew at the altar of knowledge. Over the next half hour, we're going to be dispensing wisdom in 25 milliliter mouthfuls. And for a limited time only, it's three for the price of tea. Mr. Herman, welcome to the Thirst Podcast. Ed and I would just like to extend our welcome again.
1: And producer James, I'm sure.
2: Thank you. I feel very
0: welcome. Just a couple of quick questions so the listeners get to know you as well as we do. Sure.
2: Uh, where do you hail from? I hail from High Wycombe, which is, uh, funnily enough, the birthplace of the Windsor Chair, should you like to know. <laughs> we love that sort of information here. Yeah. Good, good. <laughs> and uh, is this your first time in Norwich? Have you been before? Um, I've been once before, but it's, it's good to come back. Um, it's nice to get some fresh air for once. Mm.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, what do you like about philosophy? Well, why... Why did you
2: want to be on the Thirst Podcast? Um well I've i no, I've never actually had any formal training and just listening to listening to your f- uh, four previous podcasts, they just they just seem like something I'd like to get more into and you seem like the perfect people to to guide me along my path. Thank you. A man like myself, rapacious for knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> How did you discover our podcast? Was it on the website yeah. or were we interested to know? Yeah. Well um <clears throat> It was actually through a friend. I can't for the life of me remember which friend it was, but it's on Facebook, actually. I found a oh, link, cool. and then that took me to iTunes. So it does work. <laughs> yeah, the marketing branch of the third Podcast doing its job Finally well. Finally come through for us.
0: And probably the most important question of them all, why did you choose the ontological argument as the topic for today's discussion?
2: <laughs> well, actually, it's a bit of a funny one. My friend was writing an essay on the subject, and I naively thought I could step in and show her the light. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not knowing an awful lot about it myself was quickly quickly set in my way, and um, yeah, I I read a little bit about it through through reading her essay and found it very interesting. Being a religious man myself, mm. um, you know, again, just just the way you deliver seems like a good a good place to
1: start and learn. So I think you've come to the right place. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <So> ecstatic, <laughs> like a keen puppy. Excellent. I really feel that we must apologise both to you and to our listeners for our unacceptable delay in between episodes four and five. Essentially, um, James decided to go on a sabbatical to France in order to evaluate the commercial prospects of setting up a second podcast studio abroad. Um, The experiment was not a great success. He reported back that the French mind was rather childlike (laughs) and certainly that the French were unable to cope with serious, analytical, philosophical discussion. Um, So I'd just like to apologise, because from the tenor of your emails, you were very excited about this opportunity, and we feel that we sort of let you down by not embracing you initially as a brother and sort of palming you off. But here we are today trying to make amends for that. Oh, that's absolutely fine. Um, Apology
2: accepted, no problem. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity, actually, now
1: that that I'm here and I've got you in the studio. Are the rumours about you true, Ed? Um, I'm glad you asked that, actually, because I I would like to take the chance now to dispel a few of the myths that have been following me around the philosophical forums on the internet. For instance, it just isn't true that I have no father, that I was birthed, as it were, from knowledge itself, and nor is it true that the blood and the wisdom of Socrates coursed through my veins. I'm but a simple graduate from King's College London, who's trying to do his best to make the world a more philosophical place. Thank you for uh, settling that one. And Rob, are the um, rumours why you call the purple dart true?
0: Yeah, yeah, they are. I know I know it seems difficult to comprehend that one man can do all of that, but
1: yeah, it is true. Excellent stuff. right? Well, I think it's probably time to get to the meat of the issue. I think we've kept our listeners and young Will here waiting long enough. Let's do this. Alright, so we're going to be talking about the ontological argument. I'll first just unpack the terms a little bit. You're a scientific man, Rob, and Will looks like a scientific man to me from the, <laughs> from the bent of his eyebrow. He looks like, like a knowledgeable sword. So, all right, metaphysics, as you'll hopefully know by now, is the study of the nature of existence. Incidentally, epistemology, which we've also been talking about in this series, is the study of the extent and the variety of human knowledge. So, metaphysics, study of the nature of existence, and ontology is a branch of metaphysics concerned with the nature of being. So, there we are. That's what we're going to be talking about today. No biggie, just a little bit of reality on a (laughs) Monday morning. Don't worry, we'll have you back in time for tea. Um, There have been many variations of the ontological argument since it was first conceived by St. Anselm in the 11th century. We can't possibly deal with all of them today, so we're just going to focus on Anselms. In any case, most variations of the argument fundamentally involve the claim that it's impossible to think of God without God existing. So the idea is that a non-existent God would be a logical contradiction, like a married bachelor. So as we saw in episode 2, such a thing is clearly impossible, given what it is to be a bachelor and what it is to be married. The suggestion is that, that God has to exist for the same reason that a bachelor has to be unmarried. So if the argument works, and it's a neat trick because it's based on pure reasoning. It's what philosophers call an a priori argument. It concerns reasoning apart from any and all experience. So it's simply a matter of deductive logic. This is as opposed to a posteriori reasoning, which involves evidence from the senses. What this means is that there's no need to infer God's existence based on his seeming presence in the world, as with the argument from design, for example. His existence can be logically established beyond doubt. This is of vital importance, because while evidence can be disputed either way, so the believer might see the beauty in nature as proof of God, whereas a non-believer might understand it as the workings of science, for example. You can't argue with cold, hard logic. So what does the argument look like? Well, as I mentioned before, the ontological argument is typically taken to have first appeared in St. Anselm's Proslogion, which was written about 1077-78. St. Anselm, as you said in your introduction, Rob, was a Catholic theologian, and a proslogion from the Latin proslogium, Is a discourse on the existence of God. So in his proslogion, Anselm dwells on a verse from the book of Psalms where it is written, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Now Anselm supposes that this could have been a message from God, that even the fool could not say in his mind that there is no God. And he sets out to unpack what this might mean. So he starts by trying to find a definition for God. Let's suppose for one moment that such a thing is possible. Otherwise, we might as well pack it up now and return home. <laughs> um,
0: I came into this one with an open mind. Did you? Hopefully I... we'll leave it with a closed Yeah, one. <laughs> hopefully we'll leave it with a
1: closed one. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, okay, well, that aside. Um, Anselm des- defines God as a being than which none greater can be conceived. So God is the greatest being we can think of. We can't think of a being greater than God. He is perfection. And some reasons that even the atheist is going to agree with this idea of God. What the atheist is going to do is to deny that such a being exists in reality. Anselm's point is that this approach is incoherent, i.e. it makes no logical sense. So ask yourself what is better. Option A, something existing in thought alone, or option B, something existing not just in thought but in reality as well. Clearly, and some reasons, option B is better. So it is better to be real than just to be imaginary. This means that if God exists only as an idea in our mind, then there would be some being more perfect than him, namely the being like our idea of God who also existed in reality. But we've just said that God is perfect. This means that he cannot just exist in our minds, because otherwise he would be less good than he might be. Therefore, we know he must exist, because a perfect being must exist in reality to be completely perfect. Thus we arrive at the conclusion that God's existence is a necessary consequence of his perfection. It is part of his very nature to exist. I've got a point to make, if I may, add. By all means, although if you have a point to make, sir, so I'm sure it's a blunt one.
0: <laughs> Harsh. Harsh um, but fair. Okay, <laughs> history agrees. We haven't heard it yet. No, okay, carry um, Surely everyone's idea of perfection is different. So if a God were, were to exist in real life, everyone's idea of perfection would contradict. Because some people would think, oh, he's got blonde hair, but I'd like my god to have black hair.
1: Well, I think all gods would have blonde hair, first of all, Rob, so I'll deal (laughs) deal with that initially. Um, Well done, that was a pretty sharp point for a man of your calibre. Well, after five episodes, I like to think that I've made some improvement. Yeah, you certainly have. Um, There's lots of things to say in response. I think the initial, I I would have to agree with you that it is difficult to define perfection. As in, if God is a perfect being, it will be very difficult for us to have in mind what he might be like. Mm. So Um, you're
0: saying it's like thinking about infinity. No matter how close you think you can get to infinity, you're still infinity away from infinity. I'm
1: saying that, yeah, I, I think we're the sort of beings that are limited by our own imperfections. So we can't understand what perfection would be like. The only thing we can do is abstract from our limited understanding of things. So if we were trying to think of a perfectly tall building, or we could work with was our concepts of tall buildings. We would have no way of actually reaching the perfect tallness of anything whatsoever. We're limited by the very confines of our biological brains. I'm afraid to come up with anything as abstract as perfection. So initially I would probably say that yes, Anselm's enterprise might not be able to get off the ground in the first place, but in his defense, all he wants us to think of is a being than which a greater being cannot be conceived so perhaps with that in mind as a definition of perfection as in the best thing mm. we might we might be able to do that i mean i think we should at least give him the benefit of the doubt that you might be able to think of something greater than other things you can think of let's if we keep that as your idea of uh, perfection then we can at least let his enterprise get off the ground. If not, if we want to get bogged down in the fact that we can't comprehend infinity, then Will's made a long trip <laughs> for no reason whatsoever and we'll all go home.
0: i concede it. So, carry on. yeah, well,
1: I think it's a good point And I think, yeah, it is difficult, if not impossible, to come up with a coherent idea of God that everyone shares. Um, let's assume that we can come up with an idea of a being than which nothing greater can be conceived and move on from there, if that's all right with you and Will. I'm yeah, yeah, I'm happy with that. Okay, so let's go. Let's return to the argument. Let's consider the argument in its logistical form. So here, here's how it would look if you, if you turned over a philosophy paper and, and you wanted the argument in logistical form so you could destroy it by attacking premise one, two, three, 2, etc. So it would start by going like this. Our understanding of God is a being than which no greater being can be conceived. The idea of God exists in our mind. A being which exists both in the mind and in reality is greater than a being that exists only in the mind. If God only exists in the mind, then we can conceive of a greater being, that which exists in reality. We cannot be conceiving of something that is greater than God, therefore, God exists. It isn't clear what sort of beast Anselm took his argument to be it seems to me that he did not intend it to be a proof for the existence of God that could be used to persuade the non-believers, as indeed it has since been employed. Rather, it looks as though the ontological argument was merely the result of Anselm trying to rationalize his own belief in God. Regardless of his intention, the argument steadily grew into one of the most contentious issues in theology and the philosophy of religion. But what does the argument actually prove if it works? Let's be clear on one thing, it doesn't prove a creator God, one who cares about us one who numbers the hairs on our head, etc. All of that would have to come later through additional argument. What it does provide is a rich conception of a being that is perfectly, uh, that is perfect ultimately and certainly worthy of awe and respect. Well, I don't know about you, Rob or Will, but something seems up to me with the argument. Mm-hmm. But the difficulty is that the logic looks valid. It's not immediately clear he's made a mistake. And indeed, Bertrand Russell was said to pronounce great God in boots. The ontological argument is sound. Other the- uh, philosophers and theologians over the years have been less effusive. Indeed, Russell himself did change his mind. The validity of the ontological argument was challenged by Anselm's contemporary Christians, uh, which is a bit distressing um, for Anselm, I'm sure, <laughs> who, because they, by and large, preferred to ground their arguments for the existence of God in experience. Now, one of the more famous responses at the time came from Gaunilo, who was a Benedictine monk, who put forward a criticism of the argument in a work he entitled On Behalf of the Fool, in reference to Anselm's belief that even a fool could not deny the existence of God in his mind. I think that's a fairly... <laughs> <laughs> He's picked his fight well there. He? <laughs> yeah, he has. Um, anyway, Gaunilo's objection takes the form of a reductio ad absurdum, which, as we know, Rob, is my favourite my finishing move (laughs) um and basically reductio ad absurdum means to reduce to absurdity and in a reductio ad absurdum one does not directly challenge an opponent's argument rather one attempts to expose a mistake in their reasoning by demonstrating that absurd consequences follow if their conclusion is granted so in essence galnino's response goes as follows i can think about a lot of perfect things that don't exist he uses about the example of a perfect island, but you may use the example of a perfect woman, Rob. Mm, I'm sure there's one out there. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> yeah. Are you sure there's one out there because you can think of one? I'm sure there's one out there for me. Okay. All right, fine. We just need to find, we need to find one for you, Rob. This is a, become, <laughs> the Thirst podcast has become a lonely hearts club for Rob. Um, As I'd always it to, intended it to be. Yeah, you've done well. Do you have any female friends, Will, that Rob can borrow?
2: <laughs> no, just think, for the night just from listening to your previous podcast I think he's going to have to go and get that 10 minutes with the uh, with the red lady <laughs> yes lady in red certainly. he listened yes
1: <laughs> oh god I'm so happy um, okay well as I was saying Garnilo, um uses the example of a perfect island um, which he thinks is something we can all imagine so it will be one for me with lovely white sand palm trees lots of attractive native dancing girls. Scuba diving opportunities. Yep, scuba diving, <laughs> gushing alcohol served out of coconuts by butler monkeys. <laughs> that sort of stuff. So Ganilo says that if Anselm's reasoning is solid, then us three intrepid explorers should set sail for this perfect island right away. But Ganilo says you'd be a madman to actually go out looking for the perfect island because it does not exist in reality, however much you want it to. So his point is that we can imagine lots of perfect things but we should not be committed to believing in their existence purely because we can imagine them. His challenge, therefore, is that Anselm's ontological argument fails because logic of the same kind would force us to conclude many things exist which we are certain do not. Um, now, there is a famous response that's been made to Garnino's point, which is that he's guilty of misusing the word perfect.
0: But earlier, should we established that there is no... Definition of perfect because it's different for every person.
1: Um, yeah, we do. Are,
0: are you just saying that? Uh, what's Anselm is using the definition of perfect as something which no greater can be conceived.
1: I'm saying that. Remember, I, remember, we did agree that we would we would let Anselm have the benefit of the doubt with regards to. Yeah, the yeah. I didn't perfect. know if
0: this is what we were doing again, or I've um, let him slip once, but I'm not happy. with well, it. Well, this
1: wouldn't be Anselm slipping. This would be Gaunilo slipping. But let's let's just say that the point we could make in response to Galnilo is that's two different senses of a perfect thing. So even if we can't actually have in our mind what a perfect thing would be, I think we can at least agree that there's two different ways a thing can be perfect. Uh, So in one sense, a perfect thing is the best representation of its class. So a perfect island or a perfect man, etc. And in another sense, a perfect thing is the greatest of all beings. So even if you want to say that, We can't imagine a perfect being. We can at least acknowledge that there's two different ways it might be perfect. One is the greatest being out of everything, and the other would be a perfect island, a perfect... Well, yeah. The perfect man. The perfect man, exactly. Sculpted by, you know, Michelangelo himself. Um, So let's remind ourselves of Anselm's definition of the perfect being, which is, again, that, that being than which nothing greater can be conceived. With this definition in mind, Anselm is perfectly entitled to ask our is your island this perfect being that I have just defined? And clearly the answer is no. Whether or not the perfect island exists, there is a more perfect being, namely that being which created the island, in other words, God. So in this way, the ontological argument allows that a perfect island could exist in the mind without existing in reality, because it is not concerned with the greatest member of a subset of beings, like islands, but rather it is only concerned with the greatest of all possible beings, something which by its very nature could not exist in the mind without existing in reality, at least according to Anselm. So the idea is that Garnilo's criticism doesn't actually demonstrate a problem with the ontological argument. It merely shows that you cannot apply the same sort of reasoning Anselm uses to prove the existence of God, to prove the existence of an island or anything else for that matter. Now, I share your, your, your scepticism, Rob, because you might think that the response I just sketched out um, in defence of Anselm is rather convenient. In as much as, why, why should we allow... I do,
0: well, he's just seemed to have gone, ah, oh, no, actually, what I meant is, you know, the greatest thing, you know, ever. I th- well, I think... I, I think, you know, the God is a human construct. If a dog had to think of the greatest thing
1: ever, it'd probably be a massive pile of bones and dog food. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's certainly strange that God has a beard... And sandals. I mean, why, why, why would God look like us? I know we we're creating this image and stuff, but I, I think we should deal with this later. I think, I think that Garnilo's respo- response does actually miss the point. I think Anselm's perfectly entitled to say, look, I've defined God as this. This is something I think you have in mind as well. And then Garnilo said, he's talking about a different sort of perfection. So I think that actually Garnilo does sort of miss the point. But you, you might still think that this response seems rather convenient. Why should we allow that the reasoning used in the ontological argument only applies to God? We don't usually argue in that way. So something still smells a bit fishy to me. But to quote Russell again, it's easier to feel convinced that the ontological argument must be fallacious than it is to find out precisely where the fallacy lies. Thankfully, Immanuel Kant, one of the giants in the history of philosophy, who lived and philosophized during the great enlightenment period of the latter half of the 18th century, is on hand to help us out. Kant's response to Anselm in The Critique of Pure Reason is to question Anselm's assumption that existence is better than non-existence. More specifically, Kant argues that existence is not a property. What he means by that is that existence is not the sort of quality that makes a being more perfect by possession. Every being possesses certain properties. These are things like shape and size. Anselm talks about existence as though it were just one of these properties. But Kant's point is that existence isn't one of these properties. It is what makes a thing and all its properties possible. To put it another way, if something doesn't exist, it doesn't have any properties at all. So a non-existent God isn't a nearly perfect being with all the attributes of perfection, but lacking existence, as Anselm supposes. He isn't anything at all. He has no qualities because he isn't real. So imagine you have an idea of a house in your mind. And it can have a garage, three bedrooms, a kitchen, nice little lounge with a couple of sofas and a wide screen TV. What Kant is suggesting is that according to Anselm's logic, saying that God would be better if he existed is like saying that your idea of a house would be better if it had four bedrooms instead of three. The house is still imaginary, no no matter how many bedrooms you give it. The crucial point is that just as you have added nothing real to your idea of the house by imagining a fourth bedroom, you have added nothing real to your idea of God by imagining his existence both God and the house are still just ideas in your mind and this is the problem there is a difference between imagination and reality which the ontological argument completely fails to take into account Anselm skips from discussing the things that exist as ideas in our heads to the things that exist in reality and he has no grounds to do that it is perfectly possible for us to imagine a being like our idea of God but existing but it is still a being that exists in our heads Anselm's ontological argument is fundamentally confused. Okay, so I think that's, in a nutshell, that's Anselm's ontological argument dealt with. Having said that, I did mention at the beginning that there are various uh, different versions of it, which we can't really go into now, but I would say that I think they all fail in much the same way. So the question is, where does this leave us? Is there such a thing as a proof of God? Um... I mean, we know that Will is a religious man. I think we should state for the record that myself and you and producer James are not religious men, which means it's three to one, therefore the atheists win. <laughs> so that's that dealt with. But um, Well, I've got God on my side, haven't I? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, have fun with that. But seriously, um, the discussion in this episode isn't about whether or not we think God exists, but whether or not we think you can prove it either way. So... Will, I'll ask you firstly, do you think that the ontological argument has been thwarted? As I've explained it, or do you think that there's wiggle room for him? For Anselm?
2: Yes, well I do think that um you definitely have given Anselm a run for his money and I do like to base my beliefs on experience like what was mentioned at the start of the at the start, yeah. But it is is very interesting to hear both sides, uh Kant and Anselm and Anselm.
1: Okay, so so if you don't think that Anselm's ontological argument is that persuasive, let me put a question to to both of you and Rob. With that in mind, is there such a thing as a proof for God? So we've only we've only considered the ontological argument thus far, uh, as it appears in Anselm's writing, and we said that we don't think that's persuasive, or at least I've said that. Um, so is there such a thing as a proof for God? How could you come it? I did another way. Is God the sort of thing that can be proved or not proved?
2: Well, I don't necessarily think it's something that you should have to try and prove to somebody. It's in the Bible. It says, "Go forth and like you know, spread the word." It's not to it's not to go and like force it down people's throat and say, "This is God, believe it." It's it's to show people. It's to tell people about it and and enlighten them where they haven't heard of things like that before okay um slightly different these days because most people would have had would have heard of that yeah um of course
1: but i suppose in these days most people would have heard of it and reject it so is then do you think that it becomes about proving god or do you think that god's the sort of thing that somebody should privately worship and have a, a construction of themselves rather than trying to come up with a sort of as anselm did shared idea of God that everybody, even the atheist, can accept. Piercing um, questions, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting the burden on I I'd like to point out though I'm that I'm I'm addressing these questions to Rob as much as you. Yeah. It's just you've stepped up where Rob's failed. <laughs> thank well, goodness you're here. Again it's
2: the again it's the whole it's the whole it's the whole faith thing. Like I you can't really tell someone about your experiences and expect them to take them as their own because they haven't had them. You That's can't you can't expect them to Just immediately say, "Oh wow, yes, I believe that Mm -hmm. God exists because you've told me that this has happened," Um, and that's not what I'd be trying to tell you. I mean, I've had experiences myself, but I wouldn't,
1: I don't want to go and reel them off because it's personal to me. Yeah, Um, of course. But you, what what I think is endearing is that Russell obviously is so convinced that logic and <laughs> philosophy is worth its weight in gold when he's presented with <laughs> the ontological argument freaks out so much because you can't find logical flaw in it that he thinks that God must exist, which well, I, I think is quite cute. I
2: guess the other, the other idea of if you, if you take God as a perfect being, trying to logically decipher him is putting him in a box and you wouldn't be able to box a perfect being, would you?
1: That is an excellent point and it leads to the sort of question of where God is comes into the philosophical programme if, if he can't be defined in the first place. But that, that's a topic for a later debate, perhaps down the pub with a few beers if you'd like to join us for our usual post-match debrief.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure.
1: Um, I would like to close the last episode in the first series of The Thirst with some thoughts about two different philosophical methodologies that we've been talking about throughout the course of the series without actually mentioning by name. I'm talking, of course, about rationalism and empiricism. Now, rationalism and empiricism are essentially two rival approaches to the business of constructing human knowledge. The rationalist, like Descartes, starts his investigation by looking at the contents of his mind and forms his fundamental opinions about the world around him on the basis of what he finds kicking about up there. The empiricist, like Hume, starts his investigation with observation and forms his fundamental opinions about the world around him on the basis of what he experiences via his senses. The debate between the rationalists and the empiricists has stimulated some of the most interesting and revealing philosophical discussion in modern philosophy. And it was a very close second to the topic of today's episode, um, as suggested by one of our main fans, Abdul. Now, I think the ontological argument shows the problem with the rationalist approach. Anselm reaches a conclusion about how the world must be, namely that God must exist, on the basis of his ideas. We mentioned that there was something a little fishy about the argument. Well, I think that we should be suspicious of any argument that purports to establish something's real existence on the basis of pure logic and reasoning. You cannot define something into existence. That's just not the way it works. So my final thought on the matter is that the rationalist approach and the ontological argument are fundamentally misconceived. Our ideas do not make the world a certain way. Rather, it is the world being a certain way that makes our ideas right or wrong.
0: Congratulations, Ed, and congratulations, Will, on Yet another fantastic episode.
2: Yes, well, uh, probably more so to Ed. He's been uh, the deliverer of sustenance here. And the
0: workhorse. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, unfortunately, that is the end of the season, everybody. We'd like to say thank you to all of our loyal fans. We wouldn't be where we are today without you. The International Body House of Philosophy. We're going to be moving swiftly on to Series 2, Ed, which is going to be about ethics and politics. That's right. So look forward to that one. I do. I can see your eyes glinting. <laughs> can't wait. Can't wait for it. Ready to get your teeth into that.
1: It would have been nice to have a mid-season break, as as most mm. sort of uh, podcasts, et cetera, do, but obviously we had to contend with producer James and his skullduggery.
0: As always, if you've got any points to make about this episode or the previous ones, you can get in touch with us via the normal means: Facebook, we're on Twitter at thirst podcast itunes we're all over that email thethirstpodcast at gmail.com and of course our website www.thethirstpodcast.com in the meantime stay thirsty everyone i always do and is god really the sort of being whose existence can
1: be proven or disproven i'm ed <laughs> 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 that when it, don't do slow stuff like that, James. We <laughs> you take turtles, your headphones off and start looking about. Like obviously, I'm gonna stop.